Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series. With us today to share the stories behind the 10 books that influenced him the most on his life path is internationally renowned writer, musician, teacher, and leading authority on sound healing, Jonathan Goldman. A pioneer in the field of harmonics, Jonathan is the author of several books, including The Divine Name, the 2011 Visionary Award for Best Alternative Book of the Year, and The Seven Secrets of Sound Healing. A Grammy nominee, his award-winning recordings include Chakra Chakra, Chakra, I never know which way to pronounce it, Chakra Chance and the Divine Name. And he's the founder and director of the Sound Healers Association and CEO of Spirit Music. As always, if you have questions for Jonathan, feel free to post them in the chat window as we go along and we'll address them before the end of this session. And now, Jonathan Goldman, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Sandy or Sandra. How are you? You can call me Sandy. It's so funny because all my English family call me Sandra. All my American family call me Sandy, which is perfect for Gemini. You know, I answer to both. There's two of me. So um, I'm good. Thank you, Jonathan. And I'm so happy to have you with us today. And your, your list is very interesting. One book in particular, which we will get to later, has really had me perplexed because trying to track it down was not easy. And then once I did, trying to find information about it was even harder. So um, I'm looking forward to your description of it. So before we start discussing your 10 best spiritual books, questions we always ask our guests and the first is what do books mean to you ah what an excellent question what do books mean to me uh from a really really early age i guess anybody who reads but particularly for myself i was transported to realms of imagination and consciousness in fact yesterday our dear son, who is uh, in law school, came to visit us, and we were talking about The Wizard of Oz, which he is listening to now as an audible. And I said, I used to sit on my mother's knee, and she would read The Wizard of Oz books to me. And we were talking about the many levels of The Wizard of Oz, which is a, you know, a wee bit different from the uh, Judy Garland uh, movie, if you like. There's some aspects of that that are um, shall we say, quite uh, unique, but books have always been a way of, for myself, escaping to the degree that I've also been really interested in writing uh, and uh, literary writing, not only uh, text, 
book typewriting, but literary writing to the degree that when I was in eighth grade, I actually wrote my first novel, ah, and I gave it to a teacher in a uh, notebook who promptly lost it. I was crushed. When I was 16, uh, I went to a very, shall we say, um, interesting, well, what one would call a private school here uh, in the United States, and um, I would go back because I was very, very unhappy uh, when I would get to my parents' home and I would just go into my room and I would sit at my typewriter and I would type for two hours before dinner. There'd be four hours of homework after that, but I needed to really release through writing. So I wrote my first novel, a 250-page novel when I was 16, called To Love and Die, which was a James Bond kind of knockoff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, actually, I recently just found it and it was... Um, <laughs> the writing is much better than I can do it's now. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so um, interesting to go back and look at the work that we've done earlier. And sometimes we can just be astonished at how clever we were back then. <laughs> yeah. So tell me, um, the second question we always ask is, how easy or how challenging was it for you to compile your list? I basically wrote a list of about 14 and uh, knocked it down to uh, 10. And of those, I, I would have included more, but I didn't want to include any of my books, which obviously I think are great books. We were allowed, I think, one <laughs> I'm on. And incidentally, hello to everyone who's kind enough to tune into this. Uh, I trust this will be an illuminating and enlightening and fun experience for you. But um, it wasn't that difficult uh, because I think that there's some bo books, and for me, understand, as I, I believe I kind of wrote in the uh, beginning, there were a lot of books that really shifted and changed my life when I was younger, whether it was the Oz books or the James Bond books or the Tarzan books or when I got older, Kurt Vonnegut and all this stuff. I dealt mostly with books from when I was about 40 plus years old and was getting into the field of higher consciousness. Um, I had a, that was my sort of opening beginning uh, time uh, line for this phenomena. Otherwise, it would, be, would have been impossible. Mm. And your list, that, as you sent it, is not in any particular order, isn't it? It's not the order that you read them or the order that you rate them. No, but as I, I do have a copy of the list here, and probably the first book, well, no, that's true. It isn't. Uh, but they were, some of them were about the same time, because there was, shall we say, this explosive um, time in my consciousness when uh, I really was led to find books that dealt with alternate ways of viewing the world, life, the universe, and everything, as Douglas Adams used to say. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, what I, what I wrote, though, is just, I guess, what came to me, not on an autobiographical uh, level, not on a uh, alphabetical level, but just how my mind was working at that particular uh, phenomena. Yeah. So let's start with your first book, um, which cropped up last month, uh, sorry, last week, and that was The Celestine Prophecy with uh, by James Redfield, which was published in 1993. Do you remember what you were doing when that when you first read that book? No. You don't? 
<laughs> I don't remember what I was doing in time, you know, the actual, you know, moment of reading it, except that I um, can tell you what was going on in my life yes, around that yes. time, of course, where, which is, uh, I was in Boulder, Colorado, and among other things, I had recently moved there from the Boston area. And uh, among other things, I was probably writing a uh, book of mine, my first book, uh, Healing Sounds, may have been actually written just about then. I may have been actually even touring that. And I remember the one thing about uh, the uh, Celestine prophecies or Celestine prophecies, depending upon where on the earth you're uh, from, uh, that really got to me was that it was a it was the first book that I remember being of, shall we say, a higher consciousness vent. It was a higher consciousness um, novel, and um, it made the bestseller list. And at the time, I thought, my, by gosh and by golly, what an indication that this is uh, going to mean that all these things that I've really opened up to and been, been working with, you know, maybe for the last five or ten years or more, have now finally hit mainstream. Mm. I don't think that was necessarily true. And, you know, in particular, with regard to the Celestine Prophecies, which I thought was a fine book and would have made a fine movie, and I have a degree in filmmaking, so I'm oftentimes always looking at books uh, to see if there would be a good movie. I thought this would be a, a very good movie, but it didn't get made into a movie until several years later. I'm going to say three, four, five, even six years later, and by then I think some of the charisma, the charm, the magic that uh, happened to the book did not uh, manifest to the public. They, they had forgotten it. The public has a very short memory. And so the movie did not do very well. And uh, for many people, they've forgotten the Celestine prophecies. You know, it's interesting because I remember when that book came out and I remember being absolutely shocked to see so many people reading it. You know, I'd go on a holiday to Spain with my children and I'd see, you know, all kinds of people sitting by the pool reading it and thinking, wow, this is this this is really going mainstream. Um, you know, and that's a great thing. And you're right. A lot of it then kind of dissipated. I think a lot of people may have put their head up above the parapet for a short while and then, you know, got caught up in life and forgot. Right. I often, uh, this is a totally different question, but I often wonder why things catch on and then also why we have such a short memory span. Because Probably because life's so fast. I guess so. And, uh, you know, I mean, because doing this list was a great trip through on a level memory lane in terms of some of the books that, uh, you know, really shifted and changed me. It's, and many of them I had forgotten about, some not, but, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden I'd be sitting there and like this, you know, one of them that I know we're going to talk about a little bit later came into my consciousness and I went, wow, that book really shifted and changed me. And as you note, it's all but disappeared uh, and uh, how mm -hmm. and why. And I, I find it just so very, very unique. And then we contrast that with number two, which 
autobiography of a yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda, which has been out there for 70 years and is still turning up on everybody's lists. Well, also, you know, okay, so I'm very big into audibles right now. I, I, for the last number of years, actually. And I find that for some reason, oftentimes, if I can have a, a visceral experience where I can listen to the book and then read it or vice versa, and there's actually ways of listening to it and reading it, uh, it affects me a whole lot more. So I have Autobiography of a Yogi uh, on Audible and highly recommended. George Harrison produced it. And it is read by Ben Kingsley, who, of course, is uh, the voice of Gandhi. So there you have uh, George Harrison producing Gandhi and doing autobiography of Yogi. And I love the connection there. But just a moment before on Celestian prophecies, yeah. so there were these different insights. And they were, they were like fabulous insights that on a level uh, we might take for granted something such as, uh, you know, um, we're all related in uh, you know, consciousness or something like that, something simple. And then there would be a chapter that was uh, relating to that. And the hero would have this a huge epiphany. And I mean, what's so interesting about uh, that is that many of the, shall we say, the insights that were revealed in uh, Celestine Prophecy, whether or not we remember the book, these insights have encoded themselves into almost every aspect of higher consciousness these days. And we just take mm -hmm. it for granted. While at that time, it was like, huh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, you're so right. Autobiography of a Yogi. Well, I trust mm -hmm. everyone has read Autobiography of a Yogi. And if you haven't, it's sort of a must. It, it was one of Elvis Presley's books on his nightstand. And how much, more can, how much more can you say about a book than it was uh, on Elvis's nightstand uh, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee? Uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, what an interesting, extraordinary person who was one of the major key people responsible for bringing yoga to the West. Um, and as a dear friend of mine who is a major psychologist, and back when I was in uh, college in the uh, late 70s, uh, in film school, playing in a rock and roll band, being a sort of a, a semi-wild and crazy person. This person went from being semi-wild and crazy to studying yoga and literally um, going over to India to studying it. He was the first person I knew and becoming a vegetarian. How weird is that? I couldn't believe it. And uh, I remember we were talking about this book recently and he said, you know, if even half the information in there is at all real. Everybody ought to be practicing yoga because the stories in it are totally phenomenologically brilliant, interesting, miraculous, and uh, truly uh, fascinating. Yeah, they are indeed. Yeah. And um, I think when I read that book, I mean, it stayed with me for, for weeks. For weeks, I just could not believe some of the experiences he had and thinking, is it really that easy? You know, is it that easy? Um, I, I don't have an answer to that one, but it, he made it seem as though it all just flowed for him. It's so interesting. Once again, just uh, the greatest respect for uh, 
Paramahansa, Yogananda, for the different people I have actually up here. This is in my desk uh, area, and there are pictures of Tibetan monks and uh, family, and I have a picture of Mark Twain, and I have a picture of uh, Sri Yukteswar, who is Yogananda's guru, up here too, uh, and um, as well as a man by the name of Ma Ramana Maharshi is there, and who else? And my dear wife and son and uh, some Tibetan entities and all that stuff. But yeah, so uh, it's a great learning experience and it's really well written. And I will also say that uh, I recently on, I think Netflix or one of these, there was a documentary about Yogananda, which is quite interesting because uh, he had toward the end of his life, which he didn't write about in the book, some kind of, shall we say, betrayals by his uh, sort of uh, person. He left second in command and he went, went back over to India to do something. And uh, when he came back, this guy tried to take over the ashram. And uh, by gosh and by golly, I mean, you think, well, regardless of how spiritually advanced you are, we still got to deal with the uh, lower life challenges that yeah. uh, exists for us. Mm. I'll have to look out for that um, documentary. I haven't uh, ever come across that before. I believe it's called Awake. Awake. Okay. I shall look for it. Okay. So number three, The Nature of Personal Reality, Jane Roberts, 1974. Okay. I'm going, yeah. All right. So A, I remember when I first read that. I don't remember how old I was. I think I may well have been in college uh, or, you know, perhaps in grad school at the time. And uh, the book truly blew my mind because there was so much of it that is inherent in a lot of the higher consciousness awareness today, particularly of the fact that for the most part, it seems like we create our own reality. And I think that this book was the first one. It was channeled, okay. Jane Roberts would uh, channel a being called Seth, and uh, Seth would speak. And this is one of the Seth Speak books, and it's my favorite. And Sandy, what, uh, what I particularly like about this is that I was talking to a youngin, as I call him now, uh, fairly recently, within the last few months, perhaps, and they were talking to me about they had found this great new book called The uh, Nature of Personal Reality. And I was going, yes, you know, it was, it was wonderful. And I, I was very pleased to A, see that it was still back up there, you know, in Amazon and whatnot, and B, that I could also get it as a uh, audible. <laughs> So I listened to that one also as an audible. It was a great and wondrous experience. Is that one you resonated with? You know, I have to confess of all the gazillion books I've read, I've never picked up one of Jane's. Never. Okay. It's, uh, <laughs> no, no. That's, okay. that, that's very fine, but I think you might find out of all the quote channeled books, whether it's Abraham or whatnot, that Seth was the original being. And if I'm not mistaken, yeah. 
and I may be may not be mistaken in this because I you know it may have been something that I recently came across. There was a whole thing of Seth talking about uh, epidemics and pandemics as being more than physical causes, and about them being necessary as collective consciousness uh, manifestations, which is very interesting being wow. written in the 1970s. Although I did find out that when I was at Woodstock in 1969, there was a pandemic going around, and I didn't know about this. How extraordinary. There's I read that. The yes. Hong Kong flu. It was like, whoa, I didn't know. All right. So the nature of personal reality. Um, once again, highly recommended. I think it's, you know, there is no original source, obviously. But shall we say in the last, oh, for the most part, uh, in the second half of the 19th century, this is probably the most profound and powerful book on creating your own reality. Uh, actually, the first one that manifested. So kudos and recommendations to that. I have to. Um, actually, I won't read it. I will get it on Audible. That'll be much more enjoyable. It actually will be because uh, on a level, it's someone speaking, being transferred to uh, paper, then you're reading it. Here's somebody speaking on what was transferred to a paper. And it's a good job. Yeah, good. Well, thank you for that tip. Number four, another one that appears frequently and another favorite of mine too, Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter and Miracles by, of course, Bruce Lipton. Yes, uh, Bruce is a dear person. Uh, you know, uh, we've, uh, he, his wife Margaret, my wife Andy, and I have gone out to dinner a number of times. And he's, I've, you know, been on my radio show uh, a few different times. And he's um, just a lovely, lovely, humble being. Uh, when I say humble being, it's just like, okay, you know, when certain people get to a, a stage of notoriety, sometimes uh, they begin to lose their, shall we say, humbleness. Not Bruce. He, mm -hmm. he gets it. He loves doing it. And, uh, you know, I think from my perspective, this book was really perhaps the first that dealt with the concept of, once again, our belief. What do, what do this and the, the uh, in nature of personal reality have to, they talk about the power of belief. This one talks about the power of belief in terms of affecting us on a uh, physiological level, on a cellular level. Uh, in fact, when it first came out and I read it and I thought, wow, this is so very, very important. Uh, and I spoke to Bruce about it, and it seemed not to be getting the reception that it should have been getting from the medical community. And I just couldn't understand that because I thought it was so very, very important. Because we're dealing with a um, concept that we call placebo effect, but it doesn't mean placebo conceptually means is Latin to please. But it really doesn't mean that whatever is happening is not affecting us on a really powerful physiological level. It simply is talking about the interconnection between mind, body, and spirit. And also with regard to the cells, it's talking about how, if you like, energy fields affect us. And I remember year, two years ago, Time Magazine had a cover story on epigenetics, which is how the gene is affected perhaps by 
happenings from past generations even. And I went reading it and, you know, looking for Bruce as, you know, one of the great, uh, you know, uh, founders of this field is Bruce Lipton and his name was nowhere to be uh, found. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe what had happened is with that, uh, as a number of books that I didn't mention, but uh, oftentimes the scientific community wants to ban a book or burn it if it threatens them enough. I guess they found this rather threatening. But it's a brilliant, brilliant, yeah. important book. I was very excited when I read it because about, probably about seven or eight years before that, I was living in England before I moved to the USA. And I remember watching a program on television, a documentary, and they were talking about people using visualization, um, cancer patients. And they actually did, they had some kind of test where they could see the measure the chemicals that changed in their body. And I remember thinking, wow, that is, you know, if that is true, then we've got the proof. Never heard anything more until book, this book came out. And I love it when I also, you know, get to see the science as well. And um, that was a great confirmation for me that, you know, what I'd been thinking about when I saw that TV documentary was absolutely real. This yeah, there's possible. another fellow from your neck of the woods named Rupert Sheldrick, who's a wonderful scientist, yeah. who's, uh, yeah. whose books, I believe, have been burned by nature and whatnot. Yes, yeah, yes. With this concept of morphic fields and whatnot, which is so very important. I didn't put uh, Rupert's uh, book down here, you know, how to choose a number, but uh, just, uh, you know, his work is, uh, once again, it's interesting, the scientific community. And I'm, you know, if you like bird walking for just a second, uh, Sandy, simply because I, th I think that a lot of what is occurring right now will need to be viewed from lenses of a 21st century science. And by that, I mean, I'm going to quote Asimov's law, excuse me, Clark's law, Arthur C. Clarke. And uh, this is from Star Trek, where they call, call it Clark's law, so it's a scientific principle, which is any sufficiently developed science is indistinguishable from magic. And I think a lot of what happens, including being able to create things with our consciousness, may be science, but we simply don't have the quote, you know, dealing with just brain waves or whatnot is not gonna sufficiently uh, answer how these things manifest, but sometime we will. Sometime we'll be able to measure auric fields and photograph auras and all this stuff, which as I'm saying, this brings us to our next book, Through the, the Curtain. Yes. <laughs> now, pronounce those authors' names for me. Not a chance. <laughs> They're difficult ones, aren't they? I think it's Not Viola so much the Pettit. first, but the second, yeah. I think it's Viola Pettit-Neal and Shafika, Shafika Carigula, or Caragula. Caragula. 1993. Uh, uh, yes, but really before that, I have a hard uh, back that's uh, before oh. that. This is the republished version, which I had something to do with. And bless my wife, Andy, because I was looking for this today and I couldn't find it. And she, great Virgo being of light and love that she is, was able to lay her hands on it and say, here it is. I said, oh, great. And I uh, basically opened it up. Um, the original hardback that I have... Uh, is all marked up and underlined, which I normally don't do, but the information was so potent and so powerful. 
And back in 1993, Devores, which is a uh, publishing company in the United States, uh, the publisher came to me and said, we'd like a book from you. And I just didn't want to write a book at that time. I said, gee, I don't want to write a book at this time, but there's a book which is out of print, which I think is so very, very important. And it's basically channeled information again. Um, and channeled information at this time was really uh, big. And um, so they printed the book and it came out, but unfortunately it didn't catch on. But still here it is. And the reason, you know, as I was, you know, I turned to a chapter and it was about photographing the auric field in the future. And I went, whoa, because I was just thinking about that yesterday. And it had information, this woman would basically fall asleep become, and consciously go to, quote, night classes where she would be taught all sorts of information on sound, crystals, sacred geometry, healing, multidimensional fields, extraterrestrials, all sorts of stuff. And um, this woman, she was a, a psychologist and a woman medical doctor would put her into a hypno hypnagogic uh, state and basically have her revive this information. And then uh, she basically had her secretary write it up and voila, through the curtain manifested. And just because it's so hard to find, uh, wow, and there's so many different short chapters. I'll just read a few. Here's photographing the etheric, the astral body, healing by sound, form and color, crystals, a source of energy. The, and this is from 19, the 1960s, probably. The We Suck Festival, Extrasensory Perception, um, the effects of love on consciousness. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm looking through these uh, reincarnation meditation. Uh, so it, it's really, you know, unfortunately, it is. It's out of print. You can find it for a lot of money. And uh, if I were in a different time in a different place, I would probably try to bring it back into print again because I think the information is so uh, valid and so very, very important. Um, What more shall I say about it? Not a lot more. I, when I went looking today, at first it wouldn't show up anywhere. And then I eventually did find it, I don't know how, on Amazon, because that's where I started the search. Um, it didn't say anything about the book, but there were reviews. And the more reviews I read, and they were very, um, they were you know, saying things like, oh my God, this book blew my mind, and the information, and I highly recommend it, but nobody would tell me what was in it? Yeah. <laughs> Just all these incredible things people were saying. So I thought, well, clearly that's a book that, you know, I need to know more about. So thank you for that. It's interesting here. I will just, because we have a moment, I'm going to open up and see. Okay. Boy, if you've ever read The Keys of Enoch, which did not make it to this, but if you have read The Keys of Enoch, I, you can tell where J.J. Hurtock got some of his. The 32 crystalline forms are the key pattern for the way the energies are built in the universe and the key to unlocking energy in a constructive way. The atomic bomb is a destructive way to unlocking energies. It may be called the left-hand path. Knowledge of the crystalline forms may be considered the right-hand path for unlocking energy by the use of crystalline forms and sound in the audible. 
supersonic and infrasonic, to, to manipulate and direct forces. Man has not yet become basically creative. His movement into creative fields is close at hand. He will direct how to use crystalline forms to unlock, direct, and control energy and to mold and modify substances. Remember, the universe was created by sound. Very shortly, the scientists will be saying this. Wow. That just, as a sound guy, uh, okay. Were you a sound guy when you read it? Were you yes. already working with sound? I was already a sound guy when I read it, and a crystal guy, and this book flipped me out because yeah. uh, we've forgotten more stuff than is in this book, for sure. Yeah, yeah, wow. Okay, book number six, The God Code, The Secret of Our Past, The Promise of Our Future, Greg Braden, 2005. <sighs> A very important book to me because it opened a door. My wife Andy and I were at a workshop of Greg's because Greg was a, f a friend of mine at the time and he invited us to a workshop that he was giving in Denver. We were in Boulder. We went to the workshop and Greg was doing a, uh, if you like, a workshop, a lecture uh, talking about what is called the Tetragrammaton or the divine name and how this could be, shall we say, transduced or decoded into various uh, things. And uh, I turned to Andy and said, my God, he's teaching Kabbalah. And some years before, I had basically had this reawakening experience of discovering what is called the divine name. And I basically put it on the back shelf because I thought it was too powerful. But once... Uh, once Greg had been teaching this, we went out to dinner. I said, Greg, I've made, a, I've made a discovery of how the actual divine name is sounded. And I said, I'll make a recording for you if you uh, basically promise that you have people turn off uh, their tape uh, machines. And what happened was basically that someone didn't. I made this recording. It was very powerful. Someone didn't, and it started manifesting on the Internet. I thought, well, by gosh and by golly, if this is uh, going to uh, manifest on the internet, I really want to do a high fidelity version of that. And that then allowed me to release Sounds of the God Code, which is the first of, uh, then I, after that I wrote a book called The Divine Name. And um, it's a very, very powerful sound. So blessings be to, Greg has written so many wonderful books. And he and Bruce, and actually a fellow by the name of Joe Dispenza, who I don't think I have on here, are this uh, strange triumvirate of uh, beings together. But, um, you know, bless them because, uh, you know, for bringing uh, a higher consciousness. And I know uh, uh, with Andy's book club, she's got a uh, book by Greg as well, because how can you not? How can you not? Absolutely. Yeah. So book number seven, Madame Blavatsky's Baboon. A History of the Mystics, Mediums, and Misfits Who Brought Spiritualism to America by Peter Washington, 1993. Madame Blavatsky's Baboon, recommended to me by a dear friend. Um, when I first tried finding it, it was very difficult. It seems to me somehow to be coming out a little bit more out of the woodwork. Um, I will say, so a confession to me is that as much as I want to believe in all the extraordinary things and 
Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi, I also have, shall we say, firsthand knowledge that many, many people who are highly advanced spiritual teaching, teachers have feet of clay. It's just my belief system. And this book was certainly a, a verification and validation of that because it deals with all sorts of really well-known uh, people who've brought forth some great information and yet at the same time have done things that were, shall we say, uh, either perhaps unethical or whatnot. And uh, I, really, uh, I really liked it because it just reminds at least me to realize that regardless of how divine we may think we are, we still are just learners, beginners, and uh, shouldn't get our egos uh, infused with anything because we can easily fall. And there are just so many stories of so many different people. Who, we have, who do we have here? Uh, Madame Blavatsky, uh, for example, Gurdjieff, Shiner, Krishnamurti, and not bad things, but just things that made them human. Yes. And perhaps Madame Blavatsky was indeed, while she was creating the Theosophical Society and writing all these extraordinary books, perhaps she also, uh, in order to you know, make a living or whatnot, was doing seances, and perhaps some of her seances were, uh, shall we say, raided by the police, and they saw uh, people under the table ringing bells and knocking the table and whatnot. Okay, uh, and, and, she, and the title comes from... She had a baboon, she had a baboon there directly and uh, to contrast Darwin's thoughts on evolution. And what's so interesting, of course, is that one of Greg Braden's more recent books, I think called Human by Design or something like that, may it be that one, but talks about the fact that there, well, that evolution may not be all that it's cracked up to be because indeed, uh, there well may have been some manip genetic manipulation about 200,000 years ago, scientifically proven, that has been written about in a lot of different, shall we say, uh, esoteric texts. And here's Madame Blavatsky with her baboon having been told that by the channel beings from the other side. So once again, you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Another yeah. thing that I've really learned, I think that this book is so important because we have a tendency of just, you know, somebody does something, they write a great book, and we think, oh my goodness gracious, how wonderful. And then we see that they've done something that perhaps is, uh, is human, and we lose all faith in them. And people who, you know, leave the cult that they're involved in, or the following that they do, or they denigrate all the teachings. No. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the way I look at that, and I've come across a lot of that too, is that, it's, it could be a way of the, these teachers, and I don't know whether that would be conscious or unconscious, showing us that we have to practice discernment and that it's the message and not necessarily the messenger that counts. Beautiful. I mean, yes, uh, you know the old the statement that guru spells G, you are you. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the concept that, yes, exactly, discernment. And it, you know, it saddens me. Um, <laughs> right? I have to jump for a moment, if we have time, just for a second. Sure. There is a really fun uh, documentary called Kumari. And it is about a guy who kind of as a goof, 
basically he's Indian, grew up in New Jersey, he's, you know, uh, and he basically uh, puts on robes, studies yoga for about six months, and starts just to see what'll happen, starts going around uh, as a as holy man from India and begins teaching and he begins getting a following, begins getting a following. And um, finally at the very, very end, he decides to do the big reveal. And the big reveal is he comes out, takes his robes off, cuts his hair, comes in wearing a tuxedo and says, this is he who I really am. I've just been basically pulling your leg and half the people get up and they leave and half the people go, no, you are a true teacher and you've simply come to grips with who you are on the external. Brilliant. And I think it's true because I think the guy had a whole lot of stuff that he was channeling and bringing forth uh, and um, people recognize that and other people Oh my God, you took advantage of us, you made fun of us. And he didn't really, he wasn't like, you know, being, uh, making fun of them, but he uh, basically was, he wanted to, see, he did it sort of as a social experiment. So it's a, it's a very good movie. I think the ones that, you know, get offended by it, they've given their power away. And that's what they're offended by, the fact that they've given their power away. I think you're very, very right. We uh, seem to want to find that divine father, mother on the earth plane, so many people, so we follow different mm -hmm. teachers and gurus and let them make our decisions for us. And as you're saying, that is giving, that is, if you like, not empowering ourselves, giving our power away. And uh, it's a path that a lot of people seem to need to go through, Sandy, and I don't know why. Mm, I don't know why either, but I have read quite a bit about it, especially in light of how authoritarian regimes, you know, are created yeah. and how they get people to follow them. And yeah. there seems to be psychologically, I think it was Wilhelm Reich, said psychologically we have, you know, when things are shaky, we all want to go to daddy, you know, let daddy take care of it. It doesn't have to be me. And that's when people like Hitler, people like Trump, people like, you know, can step forward and people will hand over the power to them. Well, it's so interesting. As you're mentioning that, there's another book, and I can't remember the name of it. It has charisma in the title. It's something like Dark Charisma or something like that. But it basically was written by a woman, uh, political Harvard PhD profiler on... Uh, basically people who have narcissistic uh, personalities, uh, and I don't, we don't even need to name anybody, but you just name one, who basically, and there seems to be a phenomenon that they found called the wounded narcissist, which means the wounded narcissist needs to find the narcissist who is uh, so uh, sociopathic that they uh, you know, will not acknowledge that they have done anything wrong. And the wounded, shall we say, uh, narcissist goes to them for uh, healing, which may be an explanation. You know, Make, yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah, well, takes all kinds. Um, book number eight, Stalking the Wild Pendulum on the Mechanics of Consciousness, 1977. Not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. Ishtak Bentov, it's with a preface by my friend, Professor William Tiller. 
who is just the most incredible man. Um, Bentoff was, I didn't know him. It was my great pleasure to be friends after he passed away with his wife who lived in the Boston area. She was a sculptress and um, she tried to carry on his work with uh, some things, but he was just brilliant beyond belief and he could present the most advanced concepts as though you were a child. And I love that. So that oftentimes he would have these silly little drawings in his books and make up uh, little stories to go along with it. And he, he you know, it, it was a place that I first learned about entrainment. It was a place I first learned about how perhaps to encode intentionality uh, onto your, con your consciousness. Uh, it talked about all these different things. And just as a thought, and I don't know why, but I do recall that long before I ever read the book, it was Christmas Eve, if I'm not mistaken. I remember watching the news when I was fairly young, I can't remember how old I was, and there were these two 747s that collided over Chicago, probably in the late 60s in a snowstorm. And it, I remember hearing about that, yes. Yeah, and he was on one of them, and he was on his way over to Japan, because among other things, he was a, uh, he developed all sorts of incredible uh, biomedical instrumentation and he was on his way over to Japan to meet with a guy by the name of Hiroshi Motoyama who was inventing something called the chakra instrument talking about photographing the e, the uh, etheric field which were and between the two of them they were going to create a method of photographing the etheric field didn't happen he got taken out but his book is brilliant and wonderful and um once you read that, I mean, I just don't know anybody who hasn't read it and come away with some sort of truly aha moment. Mm. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how we see, we, that's not an uncommon experience. We see somebody absolutely brilliant on, you know, uh, on their way to do something really important. And boom, they're gone. Yeah. That's it. It really, really makes you wonder. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So book number nine, Music, Physician for Times to Come, edited by Don G Campbell, 1991. Okay, so Don Campbell is, uh, first of all, he's a person who uh, was the one of the first artists on my music label, Spirit Music. He is also the person who wrote a book that a lot of people have heard of, which is much more famous, that started a whole trend in understanding the power of, of uh, music called the Mozart effect. <laughs> but he's also, we are most blessed be because he's the person who uh, introduced my wife, Andy, to me. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, bless Don, and um, this was... Uh, I think a great book because he edited it and he's got some writing in it and um, there's some wonderful spiritual, scientific and just, you know, um, out there information on 
how sound and music can be used to heal. And it was such a wide, diverse category of subjects in the sound, what do you say, sound healing, that, that's a subject. Yeah, well, there are a lot of subcategories, whether it's uh, Alfred Tomatis's work with uh, how we listen and how we hear, to David Hikes talking about harmonics, to um, someone else talking about uh, sonic entrainment. Actually, that was me, that was my first published uh, work on uh, that. That was from a paper that I wrote for these scientists. And um, it was just beautiful and wonderful and highly recommended. And when I started a, a school of sound in Boulder in around 1991, 1992, I was able to use this because it's almost as though every week we would touch on a subject and then we'd be, I'd be able to amplify the subject by having them read a chapter that was related to it in the book, mantras, whatever, mm. you know, it's great. So mm. kudos to Don for that one. And, uh, yeah, indeed. And isn't it interesting that now there seems to be an explosion of interest and science is finally beginning to do its job and start investigating. And uh, there are quite a few scientific studies out there about the, the, you know, the power of sound. I remember um, working on a book recently and I had to do a lot of research on sound and light and coming across this old YouTube video, I say old, it's probably sometime in the last 10 years, um, where a doctor was showing, he actually had video of um, sound destroying cancer cells. Yes, yes, that, that would, I mean, I, I can actually, that's, uh, I know the fellow uh, from a Skidmore University and uh, uh, I believe I uh, actually mentioned that in the uh, last book, uh, which is uh, here, uh, and it's interesting, but uh, also getting back to Don for a second, uh, he did talk about the work of Dr. Alfred Tomatis, who had done groundbreaking work on the ear and on the conscious ear and unconscious listening and how the ear is basically, from his perception, uh, uh, the first organ to be formed in the body and that the brain grows out of the ear. And this, is, this man was a major otolaryngologist from uh, Paris and he passed away and he passed away and unfortunately very, very few people now in the sound field who are up and coming and getting into it have even heard of him. So they therefore don't know about his work with the ear, with listening. And he actually did a lot of work with humming, etc. Uh, so he was very, very uh, extraordinary being. And it's so interesting how, uh, you know, one of the things uh, making this list makes me, makes me also realize how there's some incredible stepladder groundbreaking books that occur and how they disappear. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what you can say about that one, but that, that is a whole other topic. Well, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about the book club, because we need to hear about these books, you know, these incredibly um, valuable, useful, you know, full of information books that are getting sidelined because there's so many new books coming out and so much, um, you know, money being spent on the new ones so that people don't even know about the older ones. But I think, um, you know, there's many people that are standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, and it's the giants that we need to be looking at. 
Yeah, and I'm also going to just acknowledge on a level, because of the ease with which one can manifest a book, a recording, even a film, I think we're talking perhaps about giving away our power. And also, I think there is on a level, it's easy because we're being deluged by so much information that it's really easy to lose uh, our lack of discrimination about what is real versus what is not. And it used to be when a lot of these books were written, if they were channeled, they were channeled. If they were based on scientific information, they were based upon scientific information. Oftentimes now you're finding information that is channeled being presented as scientific information. Uh, you know, and there are all these quotes from well-known people from uh, Nikolai Tesla to Albert Einstein that they didn't say, but they're a tribute to them. And then you have to really dig really deep to find out that uh, Einstein did not say everything in the universe is in vibration. It's true, but he's not, the, and it's attributed to him, but he didn't say that. So that sort of thing, there's a lot of misinformation now because you don't have the editorial process that you had back when a lot of these books were being created. If they were channeled, once again, they were channeled. If they were scientific, well, then the editors really made you go there and give you, index your data and make sure it's, your stuff is real as opposed to you just making it up. Mm. There are people I know of who write books uh, and using as their major uh, form of uh, research, they go through the internet. And you can find anything and prove anything through the internet. It doesn't mean it's real, although it does mean that somebody thinks it. Yeah, yeah. Discernment, discernment, discernment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, be your own researcher as well. So let's move on to number 10. And um, this is a book that I feel very, very warmly about. You and I had a conversation, you, me and Andy had a conversation a month or so ago on the radio show, The Humming Effect. And the reason I love this, Jonathan, because it's your book, um, but not just because it's your book, but the reason I love it is... I love simplicity and I love the fact that, you know, we have everything we need. We just need to know about it. And this just gives people a great tool that they don't even know that they've got. So talk to us about the humming effect, which has only been out, what, three years? Right. And I will say also that it is available as an Audible and a Kindle. Here it is. Ah, got it right here because got to have it right next to me because it's, uh, you know, next to my heart. Um, yeah. The basic bottom line is uh, I have been in this field of using sound as a healing modality for over 40 years. My wife, Andy, has been in the field for over 25 years. So between us, we have, uh, we're almost old enough to make the age of one of us, but we're a little bit older than that. And we found that one of the great uh, difficulties with people learning to use sound for healing is that they confuse a sound with music and that they think that uh, they need to be a trained musician or a trained vocalist in order to be used sound to vibrate themselves and feel the th and experience the therapeutic benefits of uh, their own self-created sounds. So we kind of looked at each other and said, okay, what's a sound that people will not be judgmental about that they, everybody can do, children, old people, doesn't matter. We looked at each other and went, hmm. And we, you know, it's the hum. I said, okay, let's write a book on humming. This will be the world's first professionally published book on humming. How are we gonna get people to take this seriously? 
And okay, well, we got to make the first chapter nothing more or less than peer review. Uh, that's a scientific, medical, um, documented information on the physiological benefits of humming. And we did that, and after that, everything just sort of opened up. And you know, people now, you know, say say to people, you know, just by making a hum, you get the creation of melatonin, you get the creation of nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. If you do it, take a nice, what we call a conscious hum, you take a deep breath, you hum, you do this a few times, it'll lower your heart rate and respiration. Oh, I, I, I've seen it go down in a couple minutes, 10 points or more. I was just on the uh, internet and I saw a, uh, an electronic device that you put on your head and you can pay $300 in order to do the same thing in 20 minutes. <laughs> so, I mean, I just love the fact, and particularly in this particular uh, point in time and space that we're dealing with, uh, it has been um, found that um, nitric oxide, uh, particularly nasal nitric oxide, which occurs when you hum, you get the uh, generation of nitric oxide in your nasal cavity, and that is a place where a lot of viruses can manifest first before they take off in the rest of the body. So what if humming, and it's been suggested by a number of doctors, could be used as a tool, uh, uh, as an antiviral agent? What a concept. How profoundly easy and simple. And hey, it's... Free. <laughs> so, so with that one, uh, we love the book. Uh, we're so very, very proud of it. And it's just... Uh, You know, you know how they uh, used to say that marijuana was a gateway drug and it opened you up to different... Well, from us, humming is a gateway sound. You start humming and it'll open you up to the whole realm of sound healing. You may not, as with marijuana, whatever you're doing, may not take you any further than that which you're doing, but it's a fabulous entry point that opens up a portal to light, sound, and love. And it's something that you can very easily get children to do. Totally, totally. Children love it. And, you know, we've got the downloadable uh, exercises in it and all sorts of stuff. So it's just something way proud. And thank you for allowing me to um, put it on the uh, list. And thank you all for uh, perhaps ch checking it out. Because if you are able to find resonance and experience it, then you might be able to share that information with somebody else and that and so therefore it well may happen uh, as a sort of domino effect of sound and we can all of a sudden become a you know i think the subtitle of the book is sound healing for health and happiness and you also get the release for example of oxytocin when you hum yes. what's wrong with that and there's something else about nitric oxide too i mean i don't know how many people know this but uh, viagra um, was actually created because of some research with nitric oxide. So, you know, for the men out there who uh, need a little lift, uh, humming. <laughs> that is very, very true. Uh, it was uh, chosen as a molecule of the year uh, sometime in the uh, early 2000s. And I just, you know, I mean, how cool is that, that we can do this ourselves? 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I love, once again, self-empowerment is so important. We are now at a time when sound as a, and music as a healing modality is really beginning to uh, take over. But if you can take some nice deep hums, uh, you know, and basically get yourself in a deep state of relaxation, how wonderful is that? You don't need anything else. You got it all. You can yeah. do it. Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. So, um, keywords. I asked you when you were compiling your list to come up with some keys, and um, you have teacher, author, musician, healing sounds pioneer. Um, I always ask on these interviews our guests to give us a little deeper, more intimate insight into them by telling us, giving us a word that maybe just their friends uh, or their loved ones um, would apply to them. Some really secret noun about the kind of person you are. What else is Jonathan beyond all these things? He's a heyoka. That is a Native American word for a, uh, a trickster, a joker. A trickster, a joker. How do you spell that word? I think it's H-E-Y-O-K-A. Okay. Hayoka. I, I like that. They would be the sacred clowns. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, at times I like that. For example, I was being interviewed yesterday uh, uh, for a radio show, and uh, this person said, well, Jonathan, now here's the time to really toot your horn and tell us how great you are and everything. What are some of your great accomplishments? And I seriously said, the first thing I said, is, well, the first thing I've learned is how to be humble and you maintain humility. Because <laughs> I, you know, which is just like, okay, you know, really it's, uh, you know, you try here and then, ah, oh, I'm so great, this and that, you know, it's like, okay, so a heyoka. So I like, if you like, but at the same time, you have to be, shall we say, cautious to make sure that people understand that you're joking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, wonderful. So um, if you had to give your son or somebody very close to you um, one book to help them on their spiritual journey, out of the books that you have chosen, which one would you recommend? I guess it would have been Autobiography of the Yogi. It was the first one that first came into my mind. Mm -hmm. It's so important and it so, uh, presents so many positive possibilities. I mean, there are a gazillion others and it's a really fun read. And it's, as an audible, it's one, if I'm having a difficult night uh, sleep or whatnot, I want to listen to, I'll be lulled to sleep by Ben Kingsley, uh, speaking as Paramahansa Yogananda, telling me about his adventures as a young boy meeting Tiger Master or something like that. Mm, good, good choice. Way, way cool. Hey, if I could have just a last uh, closing word. Mm, go ahead. We heal the planet, we heal ourselves. We heal ourselves and we heal our planet. We can make a difference and we have a choice. We do indeed. Jonathan Goldman, thank you for sharing your 10 best spiritual books that influenced you the most on your journey. If anybody would like to check out Jonathan's work, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, but you can find everything you need to know, his music, his books, 
experience the music, sign up for his workshops at healingsounds.com. Jonathan, thank you. And thank you to all of you who joined us today and anybody else who is listening to this later.